It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Winston Churchill once said, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough Seeker Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual web episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what are we talking about today? Well, Rick, our question is, Jesus is risen. How does that change me? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. And the angel said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. So, Jesus is risen. How does that change me? Folks, yesterday was Easter Sunday, and it's a widely celebrated holiday. It's a day that represents life, and for Christians, it represents life in its highest form, for it's about the resurrection of Jesus. It's far too easy to lose the deep meaning of Jesus' sacrifice and victory in the commotion and the fanfare of the Easter eggs, the Easter bunny, and the Easter chocolate. As Christians, we know that Jesus' resurrection was a world-changing experience, but was it a personal, life-changing experience for me. How does the fact of Jesus being in heaven again with God affect me every day? To trace the kind of changes his resurrection can have on us, we need to look at the, diff- at the kind of effect it had on some of those who were there and experienced it firsthand. What did they see, and what did they change? So coming up in today's podcast— Have you ever gone through something so traumatic that you didn't know which end was up? The disciples of Jesus felt exactly that way. In segments two and three, we follow some of their reactions from leaving town to just going back to what they knew. There are some surprising lessons here. What do you do when you still doubt, even though everyone around you seems to be confident? We track several doubters and their pathway to confidence in segment four. And finally, What did the sacrifice of Jesus actually do for non-believers? Well, in segment five, we track that powerful answer. But first, politics are everywhere, and it certainly was no exception when they crucified Jesus. In our first segment, we see that what the reactions of the religious leaders were to the now-crucified Jesus, and it really isn't pretty. So, Jonathan, to get this started, let's get going with... Um, a soundbite that gives us a sense of a little bit of background before we actually get into the resurrection of Jesus. This is actually from our friends, the Skit Guys, and it's called Easter Daybreak. Daybreak is almost here. It's nearly Sunday. 
700 years ago, a man named Isaiah wrote that the Messiah would come to Israel and be rejected and killed. 400 years ago, God stopped sending prophets. Thirty-three years ago, God broke his silence and an army of angels announced the birth of the Savior. Three and a half years ago, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years ago, Jesus told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up and that those who believe in him will have eternal life. One year ago, Jesus told his followers he would be killed by the Jewish leaders, but that he would rise again after three days. Last Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem as the people shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thursday night, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own and arrested. On Friday, the crowd shouted crucify, and the sinless Son of God was killed on a Roman cross. Well, we begin our look into some of Jesus' disciples' experiences with the overriding social and political tenor right after Jesus died. The following summation is based on John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42, and Matthew 27, 60 through 66. So, Jonathan, to sum those verses up, there was a sense of urgency to the end uh, crucifixion scene. The urgency was not driven by any form of compassion or mercy, but by the fact that sundown was the beginning of both Sabbath and the Passover, which made this particular Sabbath a higher and holier celebration than normal. With the tens of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem for the Passover, the spectacle of bodies on crosses, especially that of Jesus, had the potential to cause a stir amongst the people that the Pharisees did not want to deal with. Thus, the urgency to hide the evidence was only the Pharisees' protection. Jesus' death was considered a victory by those who hated him. It also spurred them on to make sure their victory would remain intact. Removing the man from the cross was the one thing. Destroying his followers was another. And Rick, in battle, the strategy often is take out the leader and the army will disband and end. Jesus was taken down to be buried in a new tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph and Nicodemus respectfully wrapped the lifeless body with the myrrh and aloes in linen cloths and laid it to rest. Then they rolled the stone over the door. All was now quiet, and the following day, at the request of the Pharisees, the guards arrived, sealed the tomb, and watched lest someone should steal the body and claim resurrection. So you have the pieces all in place, and the Pharisees are paranoid. They're just paranoid about protecting their position, and they send guards, and they seal the tomb, and they make it so this is impossible, they can't fake anything. Well, what happens? 
Jesus' death brought Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus together to publicly show their respect and love for him. Nicodemus was a respected Pharisee, and Joseph was a highly respected citizen. Their stand for Jesus here could cost them influence and power. So you have these two individuals really rising up in a, in a very, very unique way to be supportive of Jesus. These are two well-known Jewish men, wealthy Jewish men, and yet they come through and they're trying to, uh, they're, they're being respectful. So let's go back to this get guys to finish the context. We've gotten the background history, and now we're going to take a look at what's happening much more uh, in line with where we are right now. Again, the skit, skit Guys Easter Daybreak is the name of this uh, video. Jesus' disciples have been in hiding, terrified for their lives, not understanding what has happened. It's been a long two nights, but in a few seconds... The sun will rise. So we get to the point of looking at this and saying, okay, the world is about to change, and in a few seconds, the sun will rise, and it just gives you this, the, almost these shivers. So we now look at the life-changing responses that some of Jesus' followers had at the news of his resurrection. We begin with those who found out first. We'll be reading from some excerpts from Mark 16 and Luke 24. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who will roll away for us the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. And he saith unto them, Be not afraid. Seek ye Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified? Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Those words are just powerful words. He is risen. He is not here. Look, the place where they laid him, it's empty. For believers then, there was no better form of credibility than a messenger sent from God. For believers now, this still holds true, though we see these visits through the eyes of biblical history. So going back to the account, the angel continues. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. You know, Jonathan, just one quick comment. Go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. And you see that extra little message that's put in place because obviously Peter had made a huge, huge mistake, which we'll touch on a little bit later. So here, with this news of resurrection, begins a new frenzy of activity. The resurrection of Jesus would not only energize the fragile followers he had left behind, and believe me, they were 
fragile at this point, it would send a shockwave through all the nation. These women went to the tomb in sorrow, and they walked away in a shocked joy. Though all of these women would carry the good news to others, Mary would be the first to actually speak to the risen Lord. So, Jonathan, as we look at the resurrection, the the big question we want to keep asking ourselves throughout this episode is, what does it mean to me? So, Jesus' resurrection in me, let's try and sum this up what we have so far. Is the resurrection of Jesus still new and exciting news to me? Am I able to reset my faith and energy and have that desire to build up others with what I know? And Rick, um, this is proof positive that all can be resurrected from the grave. What good news. It still excites me. It brings joy that year in and year out, we can still share God's plan through Christian questions. You know, and, and, and that's the point. One of the things that we want the resurrection to do for us is to give us that continuous energy to look up and to be able to be a beacon of light in a very, very dark world. These strong reactions to Jesus' death and resurrection should make us take our own spiritual temperature. We know what the news of Jesus' resurrection started, but how did it become real to the disciples? Personal Bible study is so rewarding. So many of our listeners have asked if we could provide an online Bible study course. We're happy to announce a new library of thoughtful questions based on each episode's CQ Rewind show notes. Each study is a compact single page of thought-provoking questions with scripture references and more. These are perfect for your individual study or small groups. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on Bible study in the main menu to get started. What's next in our audio study, Rick? We all react differently to what could be life-changing news. For the disciples, having gone through the tragedy of Jesus' crucifixion was a major trauma. Even though he told them several times that it would happen, it didn't seem real. To them, the man Christ Jesus seemed invincible. And, and Rick, um, be hot or cold, uh, and not lukewarm. That reminds me of Revelation 3.16. Hot, having zeal for the Lord, and cold to errors taught from the Bible. So, and that's the thing. You've got these things all happening, and it just really comes down to keeping your focus. How do we keep our focus in those difficult times, in those, in, those, in those traumatic experiences that we have. And here you have the followers of Jesus losing him in a very, very horrific manner and just not knowing what to do and how to do it. We've all gone through those unexpected traumas. Take, talking it out is therapeutic. And the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus were doing just that. They were likely sharing their shock and grief about what had just occurred. They were also likely sharing their insecurity about a future that had basically looked empty as they tried to piece together the resurrection news that they'd heard earlier. So we're going to drop in on these two disciples walking to Emmaus, and it's about a seven-mile walk. And uh, so we're going to be picking up from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. We'll break it into pieces. And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were 
talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. So they're they're having this conversation, and you know it's hard to know exactly what they're saying, but we know, according to the scriptures, that they're they're not feeling good. Sometimes, sometimes the answer to our confusion and insecurity simply makes itself available when we're not even looking for it. When this happens, we're often unaware, and we are because we're too busy wrestling with our own questions. And folks, does that happen to you? You get so busy wrestling with your own questions and your own concerns and your own feelings about what's happening that you don't know how to grab hold of something else bigger. Let's go back to Luke 24, uh, verses, uh, we're going to take verses 15 through 24, but break it up into pieces again. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging one with another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Okay, so Jesus approaches. They don't know it's him, and he's asking them, what what, what are you guys talking about? And, And obviously, they are distraught because it's confusing. They had the biggest, probably the biggest disappointment of their entire lives just a few days ago when Jesus is crucified. And now they hear news of him being raised. And it's like, wait, what? Where? How come? They just don't know how to put it together. And Jesus is standing before them, but they don't recognize him. Let's continue. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. So they, they, they spill their guts. <laughs> they, they just tell them, okay, you haven't heard about all of this? And they talk about the, the, the rulers and bringing Jesus to death, and they thought that he was it, and mighty, and, and then there's crucifixion, and we really hoped, we really hoped that this was it. This is exactly what everyone was looking forward to. And so they're showing their, their dismay because it's the, the excitement and then the crash of utter disappointment. And then they add, let's continue... But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us at the tomb found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. So they knew what happened, but the absence of seeing Jesus made it so that it was still mysterious. They had, actually, they had the answer right in front of them, but they were not able to process the answer because the information didn't seem complete. Do we ever get into the position with our faith and our life events? Do the hardships of life ever overshadow the grace and providence of the gospel? Do we ever get like that? Do we ever get to a point where we are, where we think, we're, we're so bent on the thinking and the issues that we're dealing with that we can't see around them? See, 
Well, with with this virus, COVID-19 going on right now, the distraction of that, are we not connected to God and Jesus the way we should be? Well, you know, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a really good, good point to bring up, because for most of us, I'm sure, you know, a, a lot of Christians love to go on Resurrection Sunday, they go to church, and this year, uh, many of us were not able to go have those services. So now, how did you handle that? Did it, did it become a distraction, or did it become a focus to say, I couldn't get it from there, but let me see it in another way? Let me dig deeper somehow or other. See, that's the point. We want the resurrection to affect us in a positive way like that, especially when things aren't going well. So let's get back to this, to this story. Jesus saw their dilemma. Now, remember, he's risen. He's standing before them. He's talking to them, and they just don't know it's him. He heard what they said. He listened. He had compassion, and then he challenged them. And this is really remarkable. This is in uh, Luke 24, uh, verses 25 through 29. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He starts out, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe. He's basically saying, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. You've gotten a report that Jesus is raised. Don't you remember all the prophecies? And he goes through, and he tells them the prophetic story of his own life, and yet they still don't know it's him. Verses 28 and 29. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Now, they had been enlightened, but they don't know it. Do we ever have that situation, Jonathan? Well, of course. Um, Do we ever overlook the power of prophecy and the purpose of God's plan in the heat of our moments? Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and, and see, that's a, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. What the resurrection, we want the resurrection to have that meaning for us every single day of our lives. And what that means is we need to apply it. As these men walking to Emmaus, they heard traumatic truth in a time of traumatic events. And they're trying to put the two together. They're still not there, but you, you, you are sure that they're listening and they're attentive and they're feeling that sense of, wow, there's something here. It's like, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something here. So let's finish up this section of verses, Luke 24 verses, uh, we're gonna do 30 through 32. When he had reclined at the table with them, He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Just missed. (laughs) He's with them. He's witnessing truth to them. He's speaking prophecies, and his breaking of bread before them is what gives them the sense of, wait a minute, this is him. And then he vanishes. Jesus, 
patiently and lovingly did everything necessary for those two disciples to finally recognize him. They were now lifted from their sadness and insecurity. This moment would likely have produced a paradigm shift for them, for their mighty Lord was present while they expressed their grief. And Jonathan, can you even imagine going back over that walk and thinking, I had Jesus with me all that time and I didn't know it? Wow, they must have been humbled. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, humbled and then utterly excited. You know, you, you are, you're humbled like, you know, you want to hit yourself on the side of the head and say, what was I thinking? How come I couldn't see? And the answer is sometimes because our life gets in a way of our spiritual vision. Jesus knew that. He was patient. He was kind. He was compassionate. And he showed them in a way that they would remember for the rest of their lives. So when we wrap up this piece on Jesus' resurrection and me, what, what kind of conclusion can we begin to come to in terms of a lesson from this particular uh, event with the road to Emmaus? In my times of grief and uncertainty, am I able to look up and see who is with me and he's guiding me? Do I accept that Jesus told us he would be with us always? Matthew 28, verse 20. In the times when I'm just off, am I able to look up and just see what's there and what's guiding me? Am, am I still aware? Do I allow myself to be aware of God's providences? That's something that these disciples actually did. They could see God's providence, but they didn't see the magnitude of it until afterwards. Now, we're going to come back to this story later on in the podcast, so stay with us for that, because the next piece is every bit as dramatic as the piece that we just went over. So as we wrap this up, as Christians, we really do have every advantage placed before us, even when we're feeling lost and unsure. How do we carry the power of resurrection with us through our personal sins and shortcomings? Our CQ crew is always giving you podcast extras, like our exclusive weekly newsletter that highlights featured episodes you may not have discovered yet, video content you may not have seen yet, CQ Rewind show notes, extra Bible study questions, and social media highlights, all packed into an easy-to-follow email inbox delivery. Sign up now by texting CQ Rewind to the number 22828. That's CQ Rewind with no spaces. Text to the number 22828. We Never sell or give away your information, and you can unsubscribe at any time. It's easy. So just send us a text, and you'll be subscribed. You know, for us, the resurrection of Jesus represents a new start. It was the physical outward sign that Jesus had overcome the horrific obstacles and suffering placed before him. It also signified that God's plan was moving inexorably forward. This plan was not only cast in stone because of the Old Testament prophecies, it was now able to be seen with the naked eye, to be heard, and to be felt. And Rick, this area uh, that we're talking about are experiences of sins and shortcomings. Satan would like nothing more for us than to give up, to feel unworthy, and stop doing God's will. This doesn't mean denying Jesus as our Savior, but it could stop our progress in becoming Christ-like. You know, and, and that's an important point. We have to be continually on the alert to make sure that we stay 
focused. Stay clear because there's so much to be seen here. Let's get back to the stories now. For those who lived at Jesus' time, his resurrection was all of this and much more. It gave each individual who had been touched by Jesus a fresh and invigorating start to their Christian experience, and sometimes a restart. This would be particularly true of Peter, as he would come to exemplify this new start for all of us. He would have to be courageous enough to look his failures in the eye, find the forgiveness that was waiting for him, and boldly move forward from there. Jesus, as he had always done, would make sure this could happen in a life-changing way. And that is a key to the way Jesus always worked. Everything he did, everything he taught, every direction he pointed was to give those who were watching that life-changing experience. Peter's last communication with Jesus before his crucifixion was not verbal. In a way that seems fitting, considered Peter's action-oriented character, and it certainly did not dismiss the power of the interchange, we drop in on Peter's third denial of Jesus, Luke 22, 60-62. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay, so in Peter's own mind, in Peter's own mind, the mark of cowardice was indelibly written upon his soul. He had been the most forward and outspoken of all the master's followers, and yet, when it came down to the moments that truly mattered, he ran and, and hid like a scared rabbit. Okay, to Peter, this must have been an impossible mountain to climb. But to Jesus, <laughs> to Jesus, this was a mountain begging to be climbed. Until Peter could understand and accept this mountain, he went back to his old life. Do we ever close the book on ourselves after we make bad choices? Do we write ourselves out of God's plan because we feel like a failure? If we are sincere... Our resurrected Lord can change that. And Rick, we know now, fast forward to the appearance of Jesus, um, to those who went back uh, to fishing, don't we? Yeah, so now we're, we're, we're going to jump ahead and go back to, to those who went to fishing. But you know, before we go there, in John tw uh, 21, um, sometimes when we look at our experiences— we end up closing the book on ourselves after we've made a bad choice. We, we, we look at ourselves and say, you know what? It's useless. I, how can I come back from this? How can I, after what I've done, what I've said, what I've thought, whatever it is, how could God ever accept me again? How could I uh, come before Jesus again? And I'm sure Peter had that exact feeling in his heart. Jesus' compassion his resurrection was all about dealing with those things and, 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 and reaching into the lives of those of us who do fall to say to us, look, I'm here for you. And this next experience that you, you were fast-forwarding to, the appearance of Jesus to those who went fishing, this is where Peter finds out for the first time the real depth of Jesus' character and love. He had known Jesus' character and love for the, the years that he would walk with him. 
but he would never know it as deeply as he would begin to know it in this part of his life. We're in John 21, verses 2 through 8. Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you know not, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So Jesus, again, very calmly, very almost nonchalantly, uh, sees them fishing. Okay, they've gone back to what they know. Peter says, don't know what else to do. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Don't know what else to do. I think I'll go fishing. Why did he go fishing? Because he didn't know anything else. And the last he knew, Jesus, he had denied Jesus. He had, he, and, and he hadn't yet had that, that personal interaction that could fix what Peter felt like he had completely broken into a thousand pieces. So he goes fishing probably to just get his mind off of things because it's just, it's just confusing at this point. Jesus shows up on the shore, shows them how to go catch fish when they've had no catch. And of course, they catch this overabundance of fish. And obviously, John says, it's Jesus. You know, it's Jesus. <laughs> you know, again, an experience that shows plain truth but can't be perceived by Peter. It was still, he wasn't ready for it yet. Well, are we ever so consumed by what we are doing that we are blinded to what is really happening? You know, and that is an important question. Do I get so stuck in my own stuff that I'm blinded to the providence of God that's right in front of me? And that's what was happening to Peter. So now he, it's pointed out to him, okay? It's pointed out to him, and what happens? Let's continue with John 21. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So it's, part of this is almost comical because, you know, they got this net that they can hardly handle. And what does Peter do? He abandons ship. He jumps into the water and he swims to the shore because he is so excited about the fact that Jesus is there. And they're, and they're like, saying, we're, we're a man down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're dragging this, this overly uh, burdened net. The rest of them like, come on, there goes Peter. And, you know, I, I like the way it says it, and he threw himself into the sea. It's almost like he just throws himself toward Jesus. And you can see the passion in him, but he's still not there. He's still not ready. He still has not been able to put his life back in order the way it should have been. So now we, we've got to go further with the story. Peter didn't know how to follow the master since he had denied him. Upon the shore, Jesus was waiting for them. He had prepared breakfast. He's waiting for his beloved followers to come to him so he can feed them on every level. They came to the shore, and they fellowshiped together. And then Jesus turns to Peter. Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. You, you know, it's, it's a powerful question that Jesus asks Peter. Do you love me more than all of these things around you? And, and Peter's answer is legitimate and deep and honest. And Jesus' response is simple. Feed my lambs. Feed my little ones. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Again, the same question. And to, and to, to Simon, it's like, well, we, I, I answered this. And I wonder if he was a little insecure at the first answer and now maybe trying to be more... more. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The conclusion of this interchange was unmistakable. Not only had Peter's cowardice been forgiven, Jesus was now, in no uncertain terms, telling Peter that there was a whole new level of work to be done. Peter was to be instrumental in its accomplishment. For Peter, this must have been an overwhelming relief as an over and as uh, an overwhelming sense of responsibility. I mean, you're relieved, but the sense of responsibility is enormous as well. He was being raised up by the risen Lord himself to do the work of the gospel, to learn to live his new name. Well, Peter means rock or pebble. And he's going to learn to be that precious stone in the hand of Jesus. And he's going to learn to be the one to assume so much responsibility, even after the denials. And folks, what are we learning from this? In, in terms of our own lives. This truly is forgiveness. This truly is what Jesus meant for all of us, not just for Simon Peter, but for all of us in our weaknesses. This is how Jesus operates. You see the tenderness. He doesn't draw attention to what he did. He simply asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And that gives the sense of Move forward, move forward, move forward. So, Jonathan, as we wrap this piece up, Jesus, resurrection, and me, what do we, what do we gather in from, from this particular uh, event? Am I brave enough to let Jesus find me while I feel like I need to hide behind the clutter of my own human conclusions? You know, our own human conclusions are really, really crowded, and they're messy, and they're disorganized, and uh, there's, there's, we get stuck in the mess of our own minds. Does the resurrection, do I allow the resurrection to have that really, really powerful effect on my life so that I can be different no matter what happens, and I can look higher no matter where I feel like I need to be? We need to focus on the forgiveness and see how Jesus just gives us opportunity because our sincerity. It's not because we're perfect, but it's because we love him so much and we want so much to serve and please him. 
It's an incomprehensible comfort to know that forgiveness through Jesus is not just possible, it is accessible. We have begun to see the power of forgiveness. How do we also give Jesus power over our doubts? Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on the Bible study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions. Personal forgiveness, sincerely received, is life-changing. Properly accepted, it makes you better and it will provoke you to be forgiving in the same way that you are forgiven. This forgiveness not only covers our wrongdoings, it covers our doubts as well. Now doubts, <laughs> doubts can come in all kinds of ways. So here now we're going to circle back to the two disciples who left Jesus uh, in Emmaus. Uh, um, who Jesus left in a mess. He left them. He, you know, he vanished uh, in, into thin air, essentially, it seems like. Their doubts about what they had heard turned to joy when Jesus, when their master showed himself. So here's what happened to those two when Jesus vanished from their sight. This is really fascinating. Luke 24, verses 33 through 40, and we're going to break it into a few pieces. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. Because now the two disciples, Jonathan, they're in Emmaus, right? Yes. And how far is Emmaus from Jerusalem? Well, they just walked with this stranger, which was Jesus, seven miles to get to their destination. And you figure they're there and they're kind of going to settle in for the evening and kind of take it easy. And then they realize Jesus was with them and they vanished. And he vanished. Yeah. So... What the scripture says is it says they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. That's a lot of walking. <laughs> but you, can you imagine the excitement and the passion and the drive to say, we have to tell everybody else what we just saw. It doesn't matter where we are. We have to get there. They couldn't call an Uber. <laughs> they had to walk seven miles back and they did. And it's interesting that they begin to relay their experiences to the others, and they're talking about recognizing him, and then here he appears in their midst. But they're startled and frightened because that's not what they expected. He was just in Emmaus not too long ago. How did, you know, how did, this is, this is just, this is tough stuff. So, you know, Jesus appears again and says, peace be to you. And so so you, you ask yourself, well, why, why didn't they get it? This was the first time ever that a man raised from the dead, became a spirit being, and yet was manifest in a way that they could understand. Totally above their pay grade. <laughs> it's just like, this has never happened before. So you got to give them a little slack in their, in their inability to comprehend what's going on. And, and so let's continue, Luke 24, verse 38. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do you doubt? Why, why do your doubts arise in your hearts? So... He's still asking them, why are you troubled? Why are doubts arising? And, you know, as a human being, you say, well, wait, give me a break. You know, this has never happened before. But his point is, I 
am here with you. That's his point. You know, Jonathan, we've heard the saying that seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. With such drama and such first-time-ever events happening so quickly, seeing needed to be supported by actions. And the beautiful thing is Jesus did not hesitate to supply their needs and then drain away their doubts. So just because they saw, he knew they needed that extra level of verification. And Jesus always comes through with what we need. So we're in Luke 24 now, verses 39 and 40. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So he's comforting them. Um, and he is, as, as he's comforting them, he says to them, touch me, it's okay. You know, it's me. And he says, and then it says, and he said this, and he showed them his hands and his feet. And Jonathan, it seems to me that he was probably showing them the marks of crucifixion. Now, it doesn't... Yeah, absolutely, it that's does, what I would think. Yeah, it doesn't say that there, but it seems evident that he's trying to give them a sense of calm and understanding that it's me, I'm here, I'm alive. So what's the question we have to ask ourselves as we look at their experience? Do we ever give more credence to our doubts than we do to the truth we are seeing and hearing? That's the big question. Do we ever give more credence to the things that are going on inside of us rather than the truth of the matter that's in front of us? And Rick, because of Jesus' resurrection by the power of God, uh, I have, there's a point that I think we need to make. The future kingdom was made possible. You know, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a done deal. And here we are in our lives, in our doubts, and we let them get to us when, when there's such beauty and hope ahead of us, and we forget it. Yeah, and, and, and it's so important, and that's why looking upon the resurrection and, and honoring the life and death and, and, and resurrection of Jesus is, is important for us because it helps us to grab hold of what really drives us or should drive us through these really hard, hard times. Now, with this event happening, John adds an important detail to this account for a further lesson on doubt. Jesus is raised and has been seen by 10 of the 11 remaining apostles and several other disciples. When all of their personal experiences are brought before Thomas, he wasn't there, he doubts also. So now we're going to go, same experience, John 20, 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Boy, Thomas's doubts are deep here, aren't they? They are, very. You know, and we, and we always look at doubting Thomas, you know, and we call him doubting Thomas, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting to me that when Jesus was before the other 10 of the apostles and he said to them, see, see me? And he said, look, here are my hands and my, and my feet. Uh, he showed them, you know, his hands and feet. And when Thomas comes back, he's not going to be satisfied with just seeing his hands and feet. He says, I need to touch them. 
He says, I need to put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. Otherwise, I won't believe. So you can see that there's this extra level of, of, of doubt, of frustration on the part of Thomas. He wasn't there. Maybe he feels like he missed out on something. Maybe he was feeling like, well, well wasn't I good enough to be there? You know, whatever it was. But he's got this extra level of doubt that needs to be, to, to, to be uh, dealt with. Um, so do we doubt? Do we ever doubt, allow our doubts to reign in our hearts, in our minds, when, when we see things, everyone else is convicted? And, and, and Jen, I don't know, Jonathan, you've ever had that experience where it's like everybody else seems to be on board and like, well, how come I'm not? Yeah, yeah, that, that happens. That happens. Um, I tell you, especially those of us that are more emotional uh, than others, uh, doubts flood in when you least expect it. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wake I, up. Yeah, and then you try to see things maybe through the eyes of somebody else and it doesn't work. Yeah. And we have to work, grow through it. And so, again, the resurrection of Jesus, how does it change me? Let's look at these experiences and see if we can relate to all of this. So Jesus would quell all doubt, but he would do it in his own way and in his own time. So let's continue reading in John 20, now 26 through 29. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. And Rick, this experience for Thomas must have been very difficult because for eight days, Jesus didn't appear until then. You know, that's a long time. Uh, it just must, you know, here the disciples are talking to him about everything that's happened and they saw him and they believe and he's just sitting there for eight days. Well, I didn't put my hand in this. I didn't touch him. So I can't believe you. Oh, that must have been hard. You know, and we wonder what was going through his mind during that whole time, if he's saying, okay, I've got to give in on this, or if he's holding on to that. It, the scriptures don't tell us. But you're right. Eight days is a long time to have to stew in your own brain. And so for Thomas, when Jesus appears, not only does he appear and make himself available to Thomas, but he shows that he knows exactly what Thomas said. So he shows that everything is in front of him. Nothing escapes him. And yet he's compassionate. He doesn't say to him, shame on you. But he does say, after Thomas answers and says, oh, my Lord and my God, he worships him because he is the Holy One. He is the Messiah unequivocally. And, and Thomas just sees that fully at this point. And he meets us where we are yeah. as an individual and how thankful we are for that because he knows our inward thoughts and, and our sentiments. And wow, what, what a redeemer. You know, and it's interesting that it doesn't say that Thomas touched his hands or his feet, does it? No, it doesn't say it. So he probably didn't need to. <laughs> you know, that, that's the <laughs> assumption, you know, that, that he, he is in such awe of not only the fact that Jesus is before him, but he knew exactly what he was thinking. 
and it helps him to put things back in perspective. It snaps his life back into a perspective that is, is again, honorable. So as we wrap up this segment, Jonathan, Jesus, resurrection, and me, what, what can I gain from these experiences of Jesus' resurrection? Because Jesus is risen, the Comforter has come. Will I allow God's Spirit to help me go beyond the seeing is believing mentality and enter into a believing is seeing way of life? And Rick, the Spirit helps us to see God's providence in our life. So we can trust him when we can't trace him. You know, all things work together for good. They do. And the, what Jesus said to Thomas very gently is, blessed are they who believe without seeing. And so there, there was a, I, I would say, a correction, a reminder of the importance of faith in the things that you know are true according to the Word of God. And we all need those at times. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And again, you see the gentleness of Jesus as he gives this very strong, very powerful, very needed instruction. Jesus' resurrection calms our sorrows, brings us to forgiveness, and reduces our doubts. What's better than that? Jesus' resurrection changes us as we follow him. Will it change everyone else in the world as well? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as What Do We Do When the Bible Seems to Contradict Itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. The world now exists under the severe penalty of death. This penalty was set in place from the time of the first sin, and it has wreaked havoc ever since. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus were part of God's plan to take the current patterns of sin and death and transform them into life and peace. And Jonathan, this is where the important stuff happens. This is where, you know, we've looked at personal experiences of several individuals after the resurrection and, and try to kind of drop in on what they may have been thinking and pull out lessons for us. But what about for the rest of the world? What about for the everybody else? What about for the unbelievers? What about for the people who, who just think that the Bible is, is a bunch of words written by a bunch of men that means a bunch of nothing? How do we understand what happens to them? So for this segment, we want to go through a prophetic look at the power of Jesus' resurrection. We want to put that all in place and get a great, great understanding of it. You know, death not only takes us at life's end, it has plagued the world throughout all of history. And we know that because it started in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You came from the dust of the earth, and I will return you there. Dying thou shalt die, it says. 
And so we know that sin produces death, the lack of life. That was the penalty for all of humanity because of Adam's sin. And so death surely has ruled. But because of Jesus and his sacrifice, the domain of death is destined to dissolve. We know that. We jump to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And Rick, I love this verse about the first fruits. No other soul was raised to life before Christ. Jesus was first and as we read in Colossians 1, 13 to 20, those verses tell us that Christ was first in everything. You know, and, and that's such an important aspect of this thing. We understand that Christ is the absolute fulcrum upon which God's plan is balanced. And because he gave his life in the way he did, it puts him in a position of being able to bring back all life. And that scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 does not get understood on a regular basis. It says very simply, as all in Adam die, so all in Christ will be made alive. Everybody dies in Adam. There's no exception. Therefore, there's no exception to be given opportunity and life in Christ. So how would this be made so? Well, first, God made a promise, a veiled promise, that Satan would be destroyed by the seed of the woman who was Jesus. That was done in the, in the, the garden scenario. As, a human, as human history developed, that veiled, quiet little promise about the seed of the woman destroying the serpent, that promise would gain clarity as it was expressed to Abraham. Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. We cannot take that lightly. We cannot just say, well, that doesn't really mean what it says. Yes, it does. This promise of blessing to all mankind would be repeated to generations to follow. The book of Galatians tells us that Jesus is that seed of Abraham who would bless the world. So how does he do that? Well, what would, what, what would the blessing actually look like? God gives us an answer. He gave us many prophecies that paint a word picture of such clarity, beauty, and detail that they're unmistakable in the story of redemption they tell. So now we're going to go through several prophecies. Just listen to the picture that the words unfold for us as they tell the story of redemption, which is based on Jesus' sacrifice. We'll start with Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Even though the perfection of Eden was lost, Isaiah's prophecy is saying that the waste places of earth 
will again look like Eden. See, Jesus' resurrection brought redemption. Redemption brings restitution. Restitution means restoration. What a perfect plan. You mean the earth wasn't created in vain? People will live on it for eternity? Oh, that's what restoration means. Restore. What was lost? What, what was lost? Eden was lost. Eden. It's just such a... Such, Amazing. It is. It's such a, it's such a clear-cut, simple picture of justice. Justice is what reigns here. God plainly speaks of this world as again under his heavenly rule. We go to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. You know, in Scripture, mountains represent governments. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the top of the mountains. So the mountain of the house of the Lord, the government of God, will be over all else. That's what this is showing us. So that's the beginning of the context of Micah chapter 4. Have we seen that? No. Will we see that? Yes. And then what happens? Micah 4, verses 2 through 5. And many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth in Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. These are specifics about the future of planet Earth. There will still be nations. That's what it says. They will all be seeking after God. They will walk in godly paths with Israel as their example. Now think about this. Many nations will come and say, let's go to the mountain. Let's go to the government. Let's, let's go before God, this highest of heights, to the house of the God of Jacob and learn. He's going to teach us his ways. So this is a powerful picture. And it puts Israel right in the middle of it. Now, same chapter, Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a powerful, powerful picture. No more war, worldwide peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I remember an angel said that once. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> and, you know, and the thing is, Jonathan, we have to take the words of these angels seriously. It wasn't just a poetic utterance. It was a prophetic statement to say, this is why Jesus comes. This is why. And you see this, this idea of not learning war anymore. And, but there's more than that. Verses 4 and 5. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all peoples will walk, every one in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of our Lord, our God, forever and ever. Everyone will learn ways of peace. Swords to plowshares, spears to pruning hooks, no more war, rather they will all dwell in peace. And then it goes on to say, everyone will be able to provide for themselves while all living under the just and merciful hand of God. 
and it, and it gives you this almost happily ever after feeling. You know, at the end of verse 5 where it says, And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And you can add, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, this is scriptural prophecy. Folks, this is not a fairy tale. This is the reality of what God said will come because Jesus lived, sacrificed, died, and was raised. These prophecies tell us about the nations coming to God. That's what we just read in Micah. Well, what about individuals? How will they be affected? What kind of circumstances will they experience? Answer, let's go to another prophecy and see. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 10. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jekylls shall become swamp, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Doesn't that give you a, a sense of just calm and peace and wonderment? Perfect human bodies, no imperfection, no disease, no sickness. You know, and that's hard to fathom, especially right now when we're going through this pandemic. You, but you see, this is a prophecy of the world to come. Where is it? It's here. Verse 8. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, nor even fools, shall go astray. So you've got this sense of a pathway, a pathway, a wide, strong, well-defined pathway to righteousness. This highway of holiness. You know, this is like a, a 25-lane highway where the people can figuratively walk on this road toward God and learn the ways of righteousness. And now the prophecy in Isaiah describes the conditions of that pathway. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, you, you can't make it, you can't make this up. It's so good, okay? You think about it, no lion shall be there. And of course, Jonathan, when you think of a lion, what do you think about? We think of Satan, uh, his influence, which has hurt humanity over these thousands of years. He will not be allowed to influence at all. So the influence of Satan is removed. The ravenous beasts that have come upon us in terms of sin and death and sorrow and darkness and, and lies and greed and all those things, all taken away. And it says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy, everlasting joy upon their heads. This is why Jesus came. Not just for you and I, although that's a pretty amazing thing. But this is the ultimate bigness of the reason for Jesus' coming. Jesus' resurrection changes you and I as we try to follow in his footsteps. It will also give each and every human being who's ever lived redemption and the opportunity for life eternal. Jonathan, now that is a story worth telling again 
and again and again. Good news, Rick. Good news. It is. It is good news beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. You can't make this up. And when we thought, talk about, and when we think about, and when we look at the point at which Jesus gave his life in, 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 in sacrifice and was tormented and tortured on the cross, what we need to do is be able to look at that and say, what came from it? And not only did our opportunity for gladness and redemption and salvation come as followers of Christ now, but it extends to the rest of the world later. And interestingly, as we know, according to Scripture, their salvation comes through the salvation of those who will be in heaven. That's why the the ministry of the true followers of Christ is called the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, let us honor and praise God the Father and Jesus his Son for putting this amazing life, world-changing plan together. It is here for all of us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow and praise his Son for the things he has done. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback and send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about something on everybody's mind. Can Christianity survive... The coronavirus. Can Christianity survive the coronavirus? Talk to you next week. <laughs>